0: Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's programme. Well, my guest today is literally a broadcasting legend. His radio credits include Housewife's Choice, BBC Jazz Club, Any Questions, Any Answers, which ran for 17 years, and Melodies for You, that was 12 years. Television credits include Jukebox Jury, Top of the Pops, Where Are They Now, What's My Line, Eurovision Song Contest, Miss World, Come Dancing, Countdown, etc., etc. He was a commentator on British Movietone News, that's probably before the advent of television, voted Britain's top disc jockey for six years, Variety Club of Great Britain TV Personality of the Year in 1960, as well as BBC Radio Personality of the Year in 1975, one of the very few artists to make the double. And, of course... He is none other than David Jacobs, C.B.E. Geraldine,
1: thank you very much for such a lovely introduction. I'd, I'd forgotten I did all those. Yes? But you
0: recognised yourself at the I, end of it, I did you? I sort of did, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I must say, David, it's a great pleasure for me to have you back on the programme a second time around. Because before we opened up the microphones today, we were just saying it must more moons probably than either one of us would care to remember when you and I last talked here on the old right. man. And I can remember you saying to me then, I asked you at the time, how did you describe yourself? If somebody said to you, what do you do for a living? And you said you were a jobbing broadcaster. And I thought, well now, jobbing broadcaster, that's what I'll call myself, if anybody should ask me what I did for a living, because if it was good enough for David Jacobs, it was certainly good enough for me. So you well, see, I remembered des- that.
1: It's a good description, isn't it, Geraldine?
0: Well, it certainly covers a multitude of sins, put it does, <laughs> yes. that way. Now, I've caught up with you um, at the Gaieties, our lovely Frank Matcham Gaiety Theatre's 60th anniversary celebration of VE Day. Um, Of course, you were stationed here during the war, weren't you?
1: Yes, it was back in autumn of 1944. I left London on the train for Liverpool. When I arrived uh, on the dockside, I waited patiently to embark upon the good ship Rush Home Castle which was the ferry boat of the day. And it brought me across to what I can only describe at that time as an 18-year-old sailor as a haven of fish and not fish and chips, egg and chips, because we could get eggs here.
0: Yes, fresh eggs.
1: Fresh eggs. We couldn't have eggs on the mainland. You had that awful powdery version. That's right. But in the Isle of Man, we had lovely eggs. And everywhere you went, it said egg and chips. And all the sailor boys, I was one of them, were loving eating eggs on the plate.
0: Were you here then at the time when John Pertwee was holed up here? Because I know he was stationed at our very own Broadcasting House, which was then the radar station.
1: That's right. In fact, what happened was I stayed here for some months, presumably to do a radar course, but I didn't actually do one. I had to wait until I got back to London, uh, till they found the proper job for me, which was to, in fact, join John Pertwee at the Admiralty to run with him the naval section of Forces Broadcasting. So that's where John and I first met after he'd left the Isle of Man and after I'd left the Isle of Man, and we became the best possible buddies, right until eight years ago, when no, nine, nine years ago, when he sadly died.
0: Yes. Um, so your memories then of the Isle of Man have always been tinged with... Um pleasantness, I think.
1: Always tinged with joy, because it was really lovely. And strangely enough, I was just an ordinary seaman, but a great friend of mine, a buddy of mine, was a midshipman. And we met each other on the front at Douglas. And of course, every time we met, I had to salute this wretched fellow, uh, who was a month older than I was, but he was a super chap. (laughs) Peter Peter Lucy, he was called. I haven't seen him for years.
0: No. And, um, Would you have been aware, you know, of all the internment camps that there were
1: here? Yes, I was aware of it, but you know, when you're 18, you don't really think much about that. You really, all you're interested in is getting out in the evening and meeting a girl to dance Mm -hmm. with or something like that. But sitting here as I am, looking over the water now, it brings back memories rushing back to me of uh, all those years ago. And it is a very long time ago. It's over 60 years ago. But the the front, the promenade, seems to be the same. And one of those houses, one of those hotels, was where I was billeted. But it was very splendidly known as HMS Valkyrie. Because as you know, anywhere the naval people go, a ship has to be named. And the boarding houses on the front in Douglas were HMS Valkyrie.
0: My goodness. I always remember John Betcheman um, I believe said, you know, describing this beautiful bay here, Douglas, yes. the promenade, you know, likening it to the Bay of Naples. He
1: was a good friend of mine, John Bettany. Was he? In fact, he wrote a poem for me one
0: day. My goodness, we, David.
1: Yes, it's quite extraordinary. We were very good friends. He didn't actually write it, but we were sitting uh, in, in my motor car, driving from his apartment in Cloth Fair to the Chelsea Arts Club, and I drew up at the lights at Sydney Street in Chelsea off the King's Road and he said, too polite to cross the amber, quiet unhurriedly we drive, off to his lady's chamber where my friend will come alive. And I said, when did you write that? He said, what? I said, that which you've just said. He said, I don't know what I just said. (laughs) And I got him to write it down and sign it and I can't find it.
0: Oh, David. But you can remember it. Oh, I
1: can. I remember it so well. Indeed, and, and the day, indeed, as well. Yeah,
0: because that's priceless, actually. Mm, lovely, wonderful. I rather well, like
1: being too polite to cross the amber.
0: Yes, indeed. Have you? I mean, have you sort of stuck to that yourself?
1: No, I must admit, I went across the amber this morning.
0: Did you? Yes, I did. Over here. No. Oh, not here? No. I haven't no.
1: seen us. I haven't seen any traffic
0: lights here at all. <laughs> of course. Um, you, where were you? You were in Whitehall, I believe, on VE Day, were you?
1: I was actually in Whitehall with the crowds and crowds of people. and Churchill came out on the balcony and we all cheered and danced. And we uh, kissed a lot of girls and a lot of girls kissed us. Because Jolly Jack Tar, you know, he was a very kissable fellow. And we had a lovely, lovely time. It was marvellous. My mother was particularly sad, though, because she you, said... you weren't
0: really demobbed then, were you? Well,
1: oh, I wasn't only, not only demobbed, I was on embarkation leave. I was going out to what is now Sri Lanka and was in Ceylon, And I flew out two days after VE Day. I flew out in a Sunderland flying boat all the way to Karachi and then a little plane down from Karachi to Colombo. And it was the most amazing journey. I'd never been out of England before in my life. And if you can imagine it, we, I took the train from Victoria Station on my own. I wasn't with another group of people. I was with the people who were going on the journey, but there were only 10 of us, and I knew none of them. And they were all officers and a couple of ensign girls. That was rather nice. Um, and we went from Victoria Station to Pool Harbor. And the next morning, we went off in our Sunderland flying boat to Port Augusta in Sicily for tea. We landed on the Nile in Cairo for dinner and stayed at Shepherd's Hotel. The next day we went to uh, uh, Fallujah, I suppose it was. It was a lake, Habanya, in what was then Persia or Iran. And then to Bahrain and then to Karachi. And this is all for an 18-year-old boy who had never been out of England before.
0: Your mother must have been absolutely almost deranged with anxiety, was she? Well, she
1: was a bit worried because I was her baby. (laughs) being her youngest son
0: Could you communicate at all?
1: Not at all, only by letters but they took weeks to arrive No no mobile phones in those
0: days But you weren't suffering from homesickness especially with the two answer girls
1: No I wasn't, I didn't suffer from homesickness then I got homesick from time to time but not really I did the first night when I was in the Navy that was awful I was at a place called HMS Royal Arthur at Skegness which was a Butlin's holiday camp and I was very upset about that put in a chalet. It was all right when we got our uniforms, but before you got your uniforms, you know, you feel a bit out of place. Yeah. Boys in blazers go to one corner, boys in suits go in the other, boys in rough clothes go in another. And then we all settle down when we all become the same <laughs> with all our uniforms it's on. It's
0: a levelling a out situation. That's right. Well, I hope I'm right in this, but an apprenticeship working the tannoy on World War II battleships seemed training enough, sufficient training, for David, hello there Jacobs, to join the Home Service within weeks of demobilization.
1: Well, in fact, I joined the BBC, Geraldine, before I was demobbed. I was um, on the radio station you see in Colombo, uh, Radio SIAC, uh, Salon, and I was there for two years. And when I came back to England, they really didn't know what to do with me. I still had two months to serve. I. Uh, I had to come back to England because I had been a rather naughty boy with a senior officer's wife. So it was decided that I ought to leave uh, before I really got into terrible trouble. So I arrived home two months before I was due to be demobilised, and they didn't know what to do with me, so they seconded me to the BBC. And it was the general overseas service that I joined as a newsreader. And I stayed on and joined the staff as a newsreader after I got demobbed. But it only lasted a very short time because I'm afraid I used to laugh in the middle of the news. People used to make me laugh. They used to come in and pour water over my head and do terrible things like that. So I I left uh, under a slight cloud, uh, not rain cloud, but it was uh, a cloud anyway. But they were very kind and they started to employ me as a freelancer. And I've been freelancing for over 60 years.
0: Can we say then that it was a quick hop to Radio Newsreel? And then from, you know, onwards to Housewives Choice and Pick of the Pops and so forth.
1: Yes, it was. Well, it was the most extraordinary time because Radio Newsreel, I used to do odd, odd voices. When dispatches came in from overseas uh, that were on the telephone, they were too indistinct to rebroadcast. So they used to call me and to read them for three guineas a time, which was lovely because sometimes I did four in a day. 12 guineas in a day, and I'm talking about 1947, was quite a lot of
0: money. Yes, indeed, yes. So, obviously, you were on the right road here.
1: I was on the right road. I think really and truly what happened was when I got Housewives' Choice, that sort of started it off. Anna Instone, who was the head of the gramophone department, rather liked my work mm-hmm. because I had been playing a lot of records out in Colombo on Radio SIAC with Desmond Carrington. Oh, yes. And Charles Chilton, the man who was my producer, who later wrote and produced Journey Into Space, in which I served for a very long time. So I was on the right road and I did lots of uh, television jobs, little little bits and pieces. I was Laurie in the first ever children's serial of Little Little Women. women, Yes, Yes, Little Women. I played Aladdin in the BBC's television pantomime of Aladdin and had to sing very badly.
0: There was a much publicised spat, wasn't there, between you and Pete Murray, although in fact it could be said that that might have been cooked up literally for publicity purposes.
1: Well, it wasn't cooked up for publicity purposes, what happened was this, when Pete Murray was on Radio Luxembourg, uh, he, he was doing extremely well and, and I was doing extremely well on the BBC. He then left Radio Luxembourg to come to join the BBC and he was going to be on, on Sunday night and I was on Saturday night and they said to me, will you trail this man, will you plug him?" So I thought, yes, I will, and I made up a funny plug, you know, a rather extraordinarily stupid sort of thing, but I did it, and then he, the next night, thanked me in an equally aggressive way, and we we had this mock Bing, Crosby, Bob Hope feud, which went on for years, and was well known to radio listeners who used to listen, especially to hear what we were gonna say about each other. In
0: fact, people wrote in to say that they enjoyed the insults better than the pop records.
1: Well, that's right, they did. But (laughs) then what happened was, when we came to to do jukebox jury. What we had forgotten was that it was a different audience, an audience who didn't know about this thing. And Pete Murray was exceedingly rude to me. I, I, I actually remember saying, I'd like to introduce uh, uh, a gentleman who's played so many records. His vital statistics, statistics are 33, 78 and 45, and that's only his head. <laughs> and he said, well, well done. You'd make a very good lavatory attendant at Leicester Square Underground Station. Mention my name, I said, and you'll get a good seat, <laughs> which was all prearranged. But they thought that he was being terribly rude to me about the gentleman's lavatory.
0: But it actually made you a national icon, David. Yes, didn't it, it did. Yes, it did. And you do sometimes need a bit of luck. You do. I mean, you have this wonderful voice. You have that mellowness, you know, and you bring the the audience in sort of on your side. Mm. And that's a gift, actually, really, which you obviously honed. You can hone and polish, I think, um, broadcasting, but there has to be that that inner spark, doesn't there? I
1: think you're absolutely right, Geraldine.
0: Well, now, um, let's move on to the... the, I mentioned so many names at the top of the programme that will all, especially to our older listeners, will mean an awful lot. For instance, What's My Line?
1: Yes, that was a lovely time. Isabel
0: Barnett?
1: Isabel Barnett. It was a lovely time. Of course, you have to remember that I took over What's My Line after Eamon Andrews had died. And the team was different because he had Isabel Barnett and Gilbert Harding and uh, David Nixon and Barbara Kelly. I had Isabel Barnett, Nanette Newman, Bill Franklin, and Kenneth Williams. But they were marvelous. And we had a lovely, lovely time together. And we did about three series of it.
0: So did you adapt to television just, you know, easily?
1: Yes, I did. I treated the- Was there tele- extra pressure? No. I treated the television camera the same way as I treat the radio microphone. Always have done. Mm-hmm. Totally ignored it. And I've always had this thing of, you've probably done in your time, not talking to the audience, but talking to the cameraman behind the lens.
0: As if you're engaging one person.
1: There is only one person.
0: That's your only viewer, your only listener, whichever. That's right, there's only one person
1: watching or listening.
0: And I always remember too, if you've got a family, television, uh, uh, friendly rather, I think television is so much easier than radio, because if you've got a friendly television cameraman and the brain goes dead for those few precious seconds, he can, he can span, he can pan, you know, and give that panoramic view. When we're sitting here looking at the sea today, he could do a filler in for us there. But on radio, it's just dead air.
1: I'm afraid so. I was always told, and particularly by one man, Roy Spear, who was a great radio producer, he said, think of a family, have a family in your mind, mum, dad, granddad and grandmom, and t- a teenage child and a little one. And if you have any worries about what you're going to say, think to yourself, will it offend any of my family? And my family lived in Scunthorpe. I've never been to Scunthorpe, but I invented them in Scunthorpe, and I still think of them as being there now.
0: It's funny, isn't it, You're broadcasting family. That's right. Literally, Mm. and they are stuck with you all these years. Yes, uh, (laughs)
1: it's funny to meet them.
0: (laughs) So, any questions, any answers? I mean, that was fantastic.
1: I did did that you to be very years.
0: knowledgeable? I mean, how did you cope with that? You probably very erudite people occasionally.
1: Well, I used to read the papers from cover to cover and uh, know what was going on. And it, it was a very different programme when I did it from the way it's done now. Jonathan Dimbleby is a very good chairman. He's a very different chairman from me because he's actually like a fifth member of the team. If you listen to him, you'll hear him butting in all the time. I always thought the idea was to let the team get on with it. But clearly it's different now because it's very party political and we were much more philosophical in those days with lovely people, uh, marvellous people like, again, Isabel Barnett and uh, Ralph Whiteman and the Baroness Stocks and Edward Ducan and Lord Boothby, all these great names.
0: Did you have any influence in in choosing, selecting the guests?
1: Occasionally, I would suggest to my producer, Michael Bowen, uh, that we should have so-and-so, and and he'd either say yes or ignore it.
0: Really? Hmm. Now, that lasted 17 years. Melodies, for you, probably something uh, easier to present in many ways. That was, what, 12 years? I did
1: that for 12 years, and the only reason I came off was because I was on Saturdays and Sundays, Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings, Saturday I would present what was called The David Jacobs Show, which was our kind of music, and Sunday morning was more classical with Melodies For You. And then they decided that they wanted me to do every day in the week at lunchtime. And they said, which will you give up, Melodies For You or Saturday? And I thought, well, as I'm doing the same sort of music during the week as I do on Saturday, I'll give up Saturday. But they decided, no, you'll give up Melodies For You. So I gave it up. Well, they gave it up for me.
0: Well was there a stage where you were actually doing both radio and television at the same time? Oh
1: yes, very definitely, very definitely, all the time.
0: I mean such as Jukebox Jury? Well I was, the on,
1: I was on three times a week very often. I was always presenting the Ivan Novello Awards. I was doing all the sort of things in those days that Terry Wogan does now with the Eurovision Song Contest, Song for Europe, that sort of thing. And it's, uh, it's, it's a good thing, you know, nowadays People say, why aren't you on television more often? And I say, well, one of the main reasons is that all the producers of these programmes are aged about 19, <laughs> and they wouldn't know who I was from Adam.
0: Well, it's, it's their loss, if that's the case, ah. David, I must say. You certainly provided the television commentary for Eurovision on the BBC several times in the, in the 50s and the 60s. You talked about song for, for Europe as well. What are your most enduring memories of taking part in Eurovision?
1: I think when we went to Naples, and and I can't remember who the singer was, and I was either Matt Munro or Kenneth McKellar, I just can't remember. But I decided that I would take the team to the Isle of Capri for lunch. And we all went over on the hovercraft, and we had the most marvellous time. And by the time we got back for the evening rehearsal, we were slightly unable to do it. (laughs)
0: There was another good time or, or shall I say slightly dangerous um, occurrence in luxembourg
1: yes that 's a rather extraordinary story. Bill Cotton likes to tell this story because we, the English contingent were having lunch in the restaurant, and it was quite extraordinary, but we couldn 't get served the The waiters totally ignored us, there were about eight of us and they, all the other tables were being looked after, and they thought it was clear, we thought it was clearly that they were anti british and uh, not going to look after us. And I said to Bill Cotton, who was then the, the producer, he, w- he became the director of television, but he was then the producer of this particular event. And I said to him, you know, if they don't come and serve us, I'm going to throw this glass up against that mirror and smash it. That'll get some attention. He said, you wouldn't dare. I said, I'm so angry, I'm going to do it. And it's the first and only time I've ever done it. I picked up a glass. It was a mirrored wall. And I threw this glass and it smashed against the mirror. Not a word was said, but the waiters attended on us.
0: (laughs) And it was lying in a thousand pieces on the floor.
1: They they must have cleared it up later, but they didn't make any notice of it at all at the
0: time. (laughs) Well, as you mentioned yourself, Terry Wogan took over Eurovision Song Contest in 1980. Why do you think the contest has lasted so long and really shows no sign of stopping?
1: Well, I think it's the sort of uh, international disease. It's a disorder. It's quite extraordinary. I think it's rather fun. I think the songs are terrible, but the costumes are rather good, and Terry Wogan's marvelous. So it's a bit of fun, and people also like the gambling at the end, to see what points they are. But of course you can't gamble on it anymore, because it's all politically fixed.
0: Well I was going to say now, as you say, it's a bit of fun, the music is secondary to the fun, yes. but, but it's so political, because um, we, we've been used to, until just recently, Western Europe being in the ascendancy yes. when it comes to the marking, now it's totally the reverse. It's East Europe and the Balkan states in, in particular. Yes. And what also amazes me, actually, is why Israel is in it at all. That's quite a puzzle, isn't it? I, I
1: can't think they're in How Europe. How did they get in? I don't know. But I actually have to admit, I didn't see this year's Eurovision. And the only reason I didn't, and, and Terry should have been with me, because we went, I went to the wedding of Peter Alice's daughter, and uh, he's a great friend of Terry's as well as mine, so Terry should have been there. Helen Wogan was there with, his, with their son, who looks exactly like Terry. It was a lovely party.
0: So you're a golfer too, are you?
1: No, not at all. <laughs> I have a set of clubs, but I'm not a golfer.
0: Well, sticking with these you know, huge television events, Miss World. Yes. Now, I'm sure you have a good story there, have you? Well,
1: I used to share it with um, Michael Aspel. And we had lovely times together, and we would ch- shut up the ladies, of course, because that's what it's about, and they were quite delicious.
0: Did anything go wrong?
1: No, not in my time. No, nothing went wrong at all.
0: And what about Come Dancing?
1: Ah, now, Come Dancing was lovely. I adored that. I did it for many, many years, many different series, and I always enjoyed it because I loved that sort of dancing. I like to look at it, and, of course, Strictly Come Dancing, which is um, Brucey Forsyth, who was at the party, incidentally, on Saturday at Peter Ellis's. I think he does that terribly well, and it's a marvellous idea. At the moment, I have to say, I prefer Dance Fever. I think that's a fantastic programme. Do you? Yes, I do, and I think Graham Norton's marvellous. Do you
0: really? Yes. That just hasn't grabbed me, I must say. Oh,
1: it's grabbed me. In fact, I think I might be missing tomorrow, because... uh, um, I'll be working in the Isle of Man. <laughs>
0: oh, dear, dear, you're going to be missing it, on, on, miss the, it yes. on, on the television. Yes. So, of course, your, your um, um, Sunday night program is still going, isn't Fortunately, it? Fortunately, yes, yes, it is. That's from eleven o'clock until midnight. Yes. Yeah, and um, I'm sure your listeners are very loyal, are they?
1: They're very loyal indeed. They write me lovely letters and say very nice things.
0: What do you think, in general, now, you know, about the standard of presentation? Um, both on television and, and on radio. I mean, are we going in the right
1: road? Well, I don't know whether it's the right road or the wrong road, but it's the suitable road. I think that, for example, the presenters on radio are terrific. If you think of the day on Radio 2 with Sarah Kennedy in the morning and Terry and Ken Bruce and Jeremy Vine, who I think is absolutely marvellous. I couldn't
0: certainly. agree with you more.
1: Jeremy Vine is a great broadcaster. Wonderful. Brilliant. Brilliant. Nobody thought he could take over from Jimmy Young. My goodness, he has. And then Steve Wright in the afternoon, they're all good. And Johnny Walker, I mean, they're good presenters.
0: Yes, but in your day when you started out, I mean, the BBC, uh, the perceived pronunciation, accents, dialects, ooh, anathema. Yes. Now, it's totally the opposite, really. If you haven't got an accent, you haven't really hope.
1: Well, that's right. I I must admit that I do prefer to have an accentless newsreader. I'm not keen. At, we used to have Wilfred Pickles in the war, you know, there, being gauzy and grand. Give us
0: the money, Nate Mabel. Give us the money, Barney,
1: Yes. So, but I, but I think it's pretty good. I'm not dissatisfied. I like the radio.
0: I know you seem to have a, you know, a healthy um, appetite for the ladies, but some people say, of course, by having women news presenters on television, uh, you are distracted, because you're thinking, well, her hair is different from last week, Um, those earrings are unnecessary, and that colour doesn't suit her.
1: I think that's a woman's view. I don't look at them like that at all. I I just think they either look nice or they don't.
0: Yeah. Uh, Life is good for you at the moment, is it? it Are the gods being kind to you?
1: The gods are not being unkind, I must admit. No, I have no complaints at
0: the moment. You certainly look marvellous. You've had a lot, of course, of personal family, Tragedy along the way, but then I'm sure, you know, who doesn't we have to wear that?
1: I've had slightly more than my fair share.
0: You have indeed. Well, David Jacobs, CBE, it's been a very real pleasure to have you join me on the Geraldine Jameson interview this week. Once again, please don't make it so long till you come back. Thank you indeed.
1: Geraldine, it's been a pleasure.